Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall from MarketScale, and we are so glad that you found us today. We're excited for today's guest. We have with us Frank Catalano. He is the Principal Consultant and Analyst at Intrinsic Strategy, and he's also a columnist for EdSearch. Frank, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, J.W. And Frank has been covering the ed tech industry for a number of years. I won't say how many, uh, but he's got a wealth of uh, knowledge and wisdom that I'm really excited for my audience to get to uh, learn from today. And really, we want to start out by letting you introduce yourself and your background before we jump into some questions and the topics. So if you could let our, our audience know a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and maybe why you love what you do, uh, I think that'd be a great place to start. Sure. I think, you know, it's probably best to say, and without giving away my age or number of years in the industry, that I've been working in education technology since before the turn of the century. And I I do mean the current century, just to be clear. Uh, You know, my background is uh, very long time ago. I started as a journalist. I love facts. And I I was a journalist for a long time covering health and science and, and then eventually moved into technology when it was new and then uh, education technology. So over the years, I have been a, um, an executive at Pearson and the school messenger business of what was then called West Corporation and also with professional examination service. But I'm also a consultant to industry companies on their you know strategy and things like that. And as a sideline, I kind of pull through the facts still and I write columns and things like that. Excellent. And that's a great segue into what we want to talk about today is Uh, What are facts anymore? Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy, sadly, around that over the last couple of years or so, and um, specifically to education, to research, to statistics um, that are all over the place now. Um, Set the baseline for us. What is kind of the the state of play with um, how to, to really get to the facts? Well, I think it helps a lot, basically, to understand that when you hear a number being spouted by somebody, to understand the source, and then take a step back from the source and say, okay, so if they tell us what the source is, does that source have a perspective or an angle, or uh, are they trying to advocate something by presenting that number? Uh, how did they get that number? I mean, if it's based in a survey, how big was the survey? Who did they survey? When did they do it? How current is it? So there are a lot of things that are really important to understand about facts that are based on numbers. You know, you see a lot of people playing fast and loose with the facts sometimes in education when it has anything to do except finance. When it has to do budgets, those numbers, you know, you got to back them up. You got to show your work. But when it comes to anything else, like trying to determine whether something's a trend or a fad, uh, sometimes numbers get spotted out there that may not be extremely solid. And it's important as an informed consumer of news and information that you know what to look for. Absolutely. And I, I think looking at the source is obviously the first place to, to look. Then second, looking at multiple sources, uh, what would you recommend for those educators out there, those district administrators? Um, where, where should they be going to, to find multiple sources so that they can kind of help discern for themselves what is true or not true based on um, a lot of data and, instead of just a single source? Well, what you're saying, of course, is important for any kind of information, any kind of news. You should really verify what you're getting. You know, these days with Twitter and the Internet, we're all kind of journalists and editors now. And so we have to verify before we share. I think, though, when it comes to some of the specific things I do, for example, for the last few months, I've been doing a twice monthly column for EdSurge. That's called EdTech Reports Recap. 
And that recap essentially is going around trying to find some of the best studies and reports and surveys, and then boiling them down into English without dumbing them down. So I look at a lot of different numbers when I do that. So maybe I can just say, if you see a survey or whatever else is out there, here's what to look for. Here's, here, here's the stuff that you should look at, and here's the stuff you should run from. So let me start with a couple of examples uh, from what I've discovered over the years and also in this column. One is look for something that says methodology, how they came about it. If a survey is published and they don't say what their methodology is, just run. Because you could just make stuff up and it could be very impressive, but it may not have a basis in fact. Then if they say what the methodology is, when was it done? That's really important, especially now with the pandemic. Uh, if it's done prior to March 2020, it may not have taken into account changes due to the pandemic. If it's done after that, maybe it did. But always look at when it was done. Then who was surveyed? You know, was it was it teachers? Uh, was it uh, administrators? Was it a general population? And where was it done? Was it in the U.S.? Was it global? Was it a combination? Some of the gold standard words are things like nationally representative sample because that means that they got enough people and they're weighted enough around the uh, whatever ge geography they're thinking of, usually US, that you can pretty much count that those are uh, what are called uh, a projectable or representative. So nationally representative is good. Uh, also um, look for how they recruited people. Gold standard is random. A lot of, you know, that's hard. Random surveys are hard, but at least you want to get a feel for how did they recruit people to be part of the study. Total number sampled is important. Uh, a sample of 100 is probably not going to be very representative. A sample of 2,000 might be, depending on how it's weighted. And just ideally, and you may never, ever get to do this, if you can see the questions that were asked in the survey, the actual exact wording of the questions and the answers people could choose from, that'll give you an idea as if any summaries you read are actually accurate. Really critical if you're making decisions. I like that. And a lot of times you'll see the survey synopsis and somewhere they'll be click here to view the, the full story. I'm assuming that you would recommend to, if those are numbers you want to share or promote or factor into your decision making, always click on the, the view more and kind of take a look at the, the report yourself instead of just the cherry picked kind of highlights. Yeah, the only cherry-picked highlights I recommend are the ones in my Ed Search columns, of course, because I did the clicking for you. However, right. uh, even I, in a column of 800 to 1,000 words covering three or four surveys or reports, can't provide all the detail. I can provide the nuance, and this is how I tend to, I tend to roll, is I'd rather provide fewer results and more of the nuance than try to gloss over an entire survey. So I try to pick out the stuff that's either the most counterintuitive, the most interesting, or is the most representative of a trend to represent in the columns. But yeah, clicking through is always kind of critical. And are there any areas of the studies that may seem a little um, uh, challenging to understand, like the standard deviation uh, ranges and things like that, that you can maybe give us a, a, some kind of 101 on what are some normal things in those areas and what are some abnormal things to kind of watch out for as red flags? First off, a lot of the surveys that I see and the, the studies that I see don't get to that level of granularity 
even in the what they what they publish. Uh, you're going to see that a lot more in academic research. It's kind of a, a must-have in academic research. And then you're going to have some some surveys that kind of cross that border between what I would call sort of uh, popular research and academic research. Um, for example, Rand Corporation usually shows a whole bunch of their stuff, and they have an incredibly interesting st survey that came out uh, just recently having to do with what's the future for virtual schooling. And um, you're going to find that from long established houses whose primary job is research, like Rand Corporation. So I don't necessarily have guidelines as to what to look, look for in terms of standard deviation. However, just the fact they even mention standard deviation is probably a sign of quality research. Just like methodology and, and the other things you explained, absolutely. Um, yeah. you, you brought up the, the RAND study, so I wanna talk about that a little bit. And I know you've probably got it pulled up there and, and can share some of the, the true numbers, the factual numbers. Um, give our audience a little background on uh, on the study and what were some of those key findings? Yeah, this is an interesting study because um, everybody's wondering what's going to happen with, with remote learning, online learning, after we get out of the pandemic, whenever that is. And uh, one of the things I try to do when I look at studies is, uh, is it representative of what actually is happening? And do other surveys reinforce it to show that it might be a trend? And this RAND study does do that. Uh, this is a RAND Corporation research report, and I'm, I'm looking off at the numbers here, uh, called Remote Learning is Here to Stay. It found that one in five U.S. school districts plans to offer fully online learning even after the pandemic ends. And one in 10 plan to offer some kind of hybrid or, hybrid or blended learning. Now, how did they get to that conclusion? Was it a question that just simply had multiple choice? No, this is where you know getting good survey and research is important. They asked an open-ended question about districts and charter management organizations, the two groups they surveyed, plans in the US. And then they came up with a way to categorize the responses. So they have these open-ended questions. You can type anything you want by the respondent. And they used a nationally representative panel, by the way, 375 districts and uh, charter management organizations. And they found a way to basically categorize and classify the responses. So it was fascinating that that's, those are the, some of the conclusions they raised, which is that you know 20% of districts and CMOs are gonna offer some kind of virtual learning uh, or fully online learning. And one in 10 are gonna be doing 10% are gonna be doing uh, hybrid or blended. Uh, that's something people should know. Yeah, and that's something that I'm sure other districts are looking at that study if they've not made their decisions on what they're going to do, which I know a lot of districts um, are still in that decision-making process. And studies like this could also influence others uh, in the space to, to make decisions informed on that. You know, is it 50%? Is it 5%? Here it looks like it's 20%. Um, that's a big deal as in education. Everyone does watch what everyone else is doing and what they're planning to do. Yeah, and I think another thing to keep in mind here too is, and this is another key point uh, that I hadn't mentioned before in evaluating surveys is, does the person releasing the survey have a horse in the game? In other words, do they have something they're trying to advocate for, something they're trying to influence or something they're trying to sell? Yeah, when I get a survey that's published by a for-profit ed tech company, you can kind of assume it's aligned with their interests. Rand Corporation, more neutral. So they're really not pushing an agenda necessarily in releasing the study. So that also tends to give a study more veracity and it's something to pay more attention to uh, in most cases. And I think this is one of those that's you know worth taking a deep look at. 
Plus, you can actually look at the real survey, the full survey and the full paper. That's amazing. Besides the, the 20% um, and the one in 10, uh, any other statistics from that survey specifically jump out to you before we move on to our next topic, which is, is going to be just as exciting as this one? Well, I would say that uh, one thing that stood out to me is even though we have been in the pandemic for quite a while, about a year at this point, you know, with school closures mm -hmm. as of March, that 69% um, of district leaders cited a moderate or great need for additional professional development to help teachers use the technology tools to provide the high quality instruction. 69% a year into the pandemic. That means there's still a huge need. And this is where telling a story or coming up with reinforcing surveys helps. GBH Education, which is a part of the public broadcasting entity formerly known as WGBH in Boston, uh, came out with a similar survey just at the same time, which talked about a high percentage of teachers themselves. They surveyed educators saying, hey, we need help as well in terms of online and remote learning effectiveness. I think their percentage was... Um, Oh, I actually don't have that directly in front of me, but it turns out teachers actually had reduced confidence over time before the pandemic and during the pandemic in their ability to teach very or um, extremely effectively online. So you, when you have two surveys like this, the RAND one saying PD is important, the GBH education one with teachers saying it's important, then you get the idea that you've got a trend here and it's probably a trend that decision makers need to address. Absolutely. And in my experience, I know when technology, the first kind of wave of technology came, um, the PD wasn't that great. And there was a kind of a backlash in a lot of early uh, iPad adopting districts and things like that, that, oh, it didn't work, right? We tried it and they kind of looked at training as a one-time event. Um, and I think now we've learned that uh, the trainings, the PD, it, it's continuous. It shouldn't be a one-time event, um, but still surprised to see 69% a year into the pandemic not feeling fully comfortable with uh, this digital world that we've been living in, um, you know, since pre-pandemic and, and have really all been living in in 2020 um, is, a, is an alarming number. And so hopefully this is a benefit of good research to, again, let those reading it, those district administrators know that this is a big need. This isn't just a, a fad that, you know, teachers want this thing. This is a real, real problem. And, and the time to start training is now, <laughs> this fall, this spring, uh, this summer, and, you know, continuing to, to make them comfortable. And it's also important to drill down a bit on that, not to belay the point, but what do they mean by PD? I mean, it's easy to say everybody can agree on stuff at a high level, right? Oh, everybody needs professional development. Great. We agree. That's wonderful. But is that product training? Is it uh, integrating the education technology in with pedagogy? Is it something else? You know, so that's why sometimes looking at these studies and understanding what underpins them really gives you a good idea as to what they mean by the terms they use when you see the reports. I love that. And, and it's probably a mix of a lot of those, but what is the mix? Is it 50% this and 10% that, or is it even across the board? And, and, you know, is it by demographic, you know, age of teacher, number of years teaching, all kinds of other factors. So, okay, well, let's keep that uh, same train of thought and move into our next topic, which is learning loss, uh, which is probably the other really big topic um, that has really started being talked about as recent as last March, whenever spring break turned into much longer than spring break. Um, what are the numbers that you're seeing and, and what is the best research so far that you've seen out there on learning loss? 
Well, unlike, uh, say, professional development and whether you know online instruction will continue, learning loss has gotten a lot of attention in what I would consider the mass media as well, not just necessarily people who follow education closely. And uh, as a result, there have been a lot of studies done on learning loss. And almost all the ones that I have seen that aren't academic research, and again, I draw a distinction between academic research and, and, and more popular or general research, have come from companies that offer assessment software. Right. Just like they would know, right? They, they can at least take a sample of, these are the kids who took our, our, uh, our assessments, whether they're a formative, summative, or benchmark uh, over you know, each fall over the last few years, and then do some comparisons about how things are going. And that's usually, by the way, been the methodology we've seen. So there were at least four studies that I came across for a column I wrote up for EdSurge looking at these. And I thought I would do a compare and contrast. And it turns out that if you dig in deeply, the methodology is different enough that you can't make fine grain comparisons. For example, one of them is goes pre-K through grade eight. Another one goes grade one through eight. Another one goes grade three through eight. They all do math and reading, which makes it easier to compare, but they also have geographic differences because you know, somebody who uses NWEA is not likely to also use Curriculum Associates iReady or Illuminate uh, Education's product, or uh, you get the idea. They're Renaissance Learning Star assessments. Um, but you can see broad trends as a result of looking at this, and that's what I looked for. And what I found, of course, is that math is the one that took the body blow. That's, that's where the, the most learning loss is consistently reported across all four of these studies. And reading, reading is either slightly back or somewhat further back, but not as far back as math in any case. So if you can kind of like abstract up from looking at multiple surveys that try to cover the same thing, you'll probably get something that's close to reality. That's, that's really good insight. And I'm curious in your research, how wide ranging were the discrepancies between the four? Was there an outlier uh, of the four or were they kind of in, in the ballpark in some ways? I would say the outlier is probably the one that got the most uh, attention in the mass media uh, and it would have been NWEA. They also tend to have uh, some of the most uh, heavy research chops of any of these organizations. I mean, they all have psychometricians necessarily or scientists, research data scientists who look at this stuff, but, but NWEA has a long history in this area. Uh, and um, they were the outlier only because they were the ones who were widely quoted as saying there was little to no learning loss in reading, whereas everybody else said there was a larger amount of learning loss. But again, NWEA is looking at grades three through eight. They're not looking at early reading, say grades K through two. So that's where you take the grain of salt and you realize, okay, well, both things could be true. There could be greater learning loss at the younger grades that NWEA does not evaluate. And then maybe it evens out over time. So again, look at the multiple surveys and then figure out where the apples line up and which apple is uh, trying to look like an apple, but actually has a peel and a different color. And to that point, from what I've read about it, what's interesting is that these are, you know, companies that have products for the most part. Um, it seems the message I've read overall is that learning loss isn't as bad as they thought it was going to be. Is there any context for that in the, the actual facts of the studies? Um, and if so, 
how did they even, you know, is that just a generic term because there were no pre and post studies or is that actually uh, the truth? And, and it seems a little contradictory. You think their bias would say this is the worst thing we've ever seen and everyone needs our products. Well, first off, you have to take a look at when these surveys were done, right? When the comparisons were done and they were done in fall. So that is, you know, we're a lot further away from Farl now than, uh, than when these studies were done. And so they're looking at, uh, they're basically comparing annual year-to-year -year performance and growth in performance year-to-year -year by the same cohorts and grades. And I'm oversimplifying, but you get the idea of what I'm getting at there. And that's only through the fall snapshot. Now we're, you know, we're in spring and uh, of the following year. So the numbers are going to change. The information is going to change. And uh, I have heard people say that learning loss was not as bad as they've expected, but I've also heard people say is we don't have the full picture. Because another thing to look at in these studies is who don't they measure? Who don't they survey? And in a lot of cases, since these assessments are taken online, they're not going to survey people in fall 2020, students who could not get online who had iffy internet connections or for some reason weren't available for these assessments. So that's the gap. And NWA makes a big deal of that, by the way, to their credit. They do say that, you know, what's, what's concerning here is that we, we don't know how the students who did not take these assessments were doing and if they could even be in a position to do any online learning. So it's also important to look at who isn't being surveyed in the population. That's a great point. And that kind of led to my next question. Uh, learning loss is not uh, a new thing uh, in the pandemic. There's learning loss every summer with specific student populations that don't get as much uh, summer education as others. And so I'm wondering, was that a factor at all? And, and you kind of answered that potentially with some of those students that are less connected um, may have been experiencing learning loss for years before this in similar ways that also may not have been uh, recorded in the numbers. Well, there have been a number of studies that go beyond these and including some of these that found, you know, disparate impacts uh, on students of color, students from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, other underserved, underserved groups. There's a lot of good research on that. Um, there's also some what would appear to be counterintuitive research that uh, is from a learn platform, which basically tracks, I think it's about 8,000 products uh, in the U.S. They've been doing kind of a rolling series of monthly reports on um, ed tech product use among different populations. And uh, they, one of their things that came out is you would, they say, have said at several points in the pandemic that ed tech product usage is higher among these underserved groups than it is among say more affluent groups. And again, definitions are important. I believe that uh, more affluent is in districts that have less than 25% free or reduced lunch. That's my recollection. You'd want to check that for yourself. Don't, don't take this person's word for it. But in those which have a higher percentage of free and reduced lunch, they have higher ed tech use. And you might say, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Well, maybe it's not. Because again, if you triangulate with other reports that are out there, people in uh, lower socioeconomic neighborhoods may not be in a position to send their kids back to school. So they have to rely on remote instruction. Or they might be afraid to send their kids back to school. So... You've got to take all this stuff in a, with a grain of salt and realize, you know, parse it apart by population, but then understand, don't, don't make assumptions as to why that population is different. Look even further into that. That's a great point. And, and I've read some research on that as well um, that was showing um, that students, a lot of the students in that situation 
are getting technology for the first time in 2020, uh, a device of their own. And that that's in the study I read, and I don't have it up next to me, so don't uh, hold me to all this, uh, but they said somewhere around three times the usage because it was their first time and they were just immersing themselves into um, all the online opportunities that they didn't have before. And so hopefully that's the one a point on the column of hopefully it's a good thing, um, but you're totally right. It really depends on the details and the, uh, the situational analysis of uh, what is what are the numbers and then what do they mean? Um, and maybe as we're, we're kind of winding down the conversation, um, how do you find meaning? Um, because it's not always, we'll, obviously we'll read your column and, and that's a, an expert source to kind of make sense out of some of these numbers, but um, beyond your column, what are other ways that we can first understand the numbers, which I think we've covered um, at a pretty good level, but then secondly, kind of the takeaways and the, the meaning behind the numbers. I think you need to look to see if, um, and this is a typical scientific, I was a, a math and science major at Harvey Mudd College, uh, so I'm, I'm a longtime nerd. So I just, I'm a fan of studies that are replicable. Uh, and uh, I think the same thing goes for surveys. If multiple surveys from multiple sources start to find the same kind of stuff at a high level, like some of the learning loss surveys did, then you get a feel that there's a trend there, that there's something you really need to pay attention to. Uh, a very dramatic one-off survey or report or study can grab headlines, but if nobody else sees the same stuff, it's just, you know, it's a one-off, it's fun. I mean, I occasionally report that when the stakes aren't high in my column, I make it clear that something only is 100 teachers or something is um, done by a toy company, you know, and you, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. But the reality is if, if it's a high stakes issue, look for multiple surveys and studies and reports that reinforce the same data and look at it from different perspectives. They don't survey the same population over and over. That'd be my advice. Absolutely. All right, final question as we start to wrap up. Um, we always like to end on, on a high note. We like to think that the half is glass full. Uh, Give us some good news <laughs> coming out of 2020, moving into 2021. What is one of the trends that you have seen factually research-based um, that you think is going to make 2021 not just better than 2020, because that should be a given, um, but better than 2019, better than pre-pandemic? How can we build you know, something from this terrible experience that is going to make us better for it? Well, as 2020 has extended into its 14th and 15th months, uh, let me just simply say that I'm looking ahead to 2022. So I'm looking like last half 2021, first half of 2022. I think, I think the, the positive news for education out of all this is, like it or not, teachers are getting a crash course in different ways of teaching. And they're finding out what doesn't work, which is important because then you can figure out what does work. And I think that there will be more choices for parents and students and teachers in both delivering instruction and learning going forward because you're suddenly adding the whole uh, area of hybrid and online learning and we'll figure out the best ways to make that work. That's one accelerant and I think that's a positive. Uh, having more ways to learn away from a physical classroom is a good thing. Another accelerant has simply been the realization that the problem people were glossing over, which was the lack of devices and the lack of internet access may finally get addressed. Right now there's a short Band-Aid. Some surveys say one to three years we have that fixed for, but everybody's actively looking at making it longer. So I think dealing with those issues as an accelerant as, is a positive thing for education, a positive thing for students, teachers, administrators, and parents. And so I'm, I'm hopeful about 
the intelligent application of technology to education uh, going forward. I love that. And, and my hope is that we cross this hurdle that it's no longer uh, ed tech as a supplement, that it is a part of the DNA of education now, that it is, you know, here to stay and we're not going to go backwards and that it's uh, got a seat at the table when it's been around for over 20 years or more. Um, and now it's been forced by necessity, but I think a lot of the, the teachers, a lot of the districts have realized that it's not as bad as they thought it was. It's not taking their jobs, which was a misconception years ago that well, what do you need me for if this technology, the software is going to teach the students uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think has been exposed here during the pandemic. Um, and so that's that's my hope uh, that we we create this better 2021 and to your point 2022 and, and beyond this isn't a, a one time thing this is something that we're going to continue to iterate on so um, I really appreciate the, the time and the conversation today hopefully my audience learned a lot um, and gleaned from your wisdom as far as what is fact what is uh, how to look at research and trends and um, we just really appreciate you joining us today. We've come a long way since the Oregon Trail was on a five and a quarter inch floppy disk for the Apple II. So uh, yes, I'm, I'm very hopeful about the future and, and how ed tech and education merge completely and one is not separate from the other. Thanks, Absolutely. GW. Absolutely, and to my audience, uh, thank you so much for joining us again. We really appreciate each and every time you join our episodes. Uh, if you have uh, thoughts that you want to share, comments, questions, email me, jw.marshall at marketscale.com and check out past episodes and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks again. And remember to always, always keep learning.